You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Harvey, a member of the Stanford eCorner team. We know it's a long, hot summer waiting for new episodes of the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series. So today, we thought we'd bring you a taste of something a little different. The Friction Podcast is the newest offering from eCorner and features Stanford engineering professor Bob Sutton. Bob's a New York Times bestselling author of such titles as Scaling Up Excellence, The No Asshole Rule, and the upcoming The Asshole Survival Guide. In this podcast, Bob brings in venture capitalists, technology leaders, and world-class researchers to discuss organizational friction. Friction is that drag, that feeling of walking in the muck that slows down teams and organizations and can even cause them to fail. If you've ever felt it, you know what we're talking about. Each episode features raw, hilarious stories from the front lines of work. Now, you may not want to listen to this with kids in the car, but it might give you some ideas on how to deal with a micromanaging boss or a coworker that seems entirely focused on making your life difficult. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to the podcast and rate and review it on iTunes. And now, The Friction Podcast. It's not anything you write down on a slide. It's what you do. And I, and I hold my CEO's little faces in my hands and I look them in the eyes and I say, the job of creating a culture is yours and yours alone forever. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I got to get a knife. <laughs> I got to hide it. I end up spending a lot of time ruminating. <laughs> I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and a Stanford engineering professor, and I've spent much of my life trying to understand how to make organizations and make the work that people do in them a bit better. A couple of years ago, I got quite interested in the challenge of organizational friction, especially bad organizational friction. To learn more about this problem, I've invited some of the smartest and sometimes some of the funniest people I know to have some conversations with us um, about this challenge. This is the Friction Podcast. Today, our guest is Patty McCord who for 14 years was chief talent officer of Netflix. Right after she stepped away from Netflix, she wrote a great piece for Harvard Business Review on reinventing HR, the most widely read piece of the year. The reason that we've invited Patty to join us today is she has such a bold and I think different perspective on human resources. Her argument in particular is that the way that an organization should work is it should for fully formed adults, and that's one of the reasons that uh, Netflix is a low-friction culture. You don't have to have too many controls or too much structure. So, Patty, welcome to the podcast. It's a delight to have you. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. There's this thing you've been talking about, how organizations should uh, be designed for and breed fully formed adults. Can you tell us what you mean by fully formed adults? Well, I don't mean anything that has anything to do with age. 
Um, so I get a lot of conversations. People want to have conversations about millennials, and I don't like to talk about it. I think it's stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, you were a millennial. I was a millennial. It was a long time ago, Bob. It's called being young, being early in your career. What do you want? Everything. When do you want it now? Uh, but a fully formed adult can is someone who is um, – serious about their life and their career and what they want to contribute. And so you can have fully formed adults in their 20s all the time. And there are plenty of not fully formed adults in their 40s and 50s, and we work with them every day. You know, it's more like a perspective on thinking about working together. So uh, one of the first things I think you ever said to me, I think you were standing outside the hall of my office, and almost immediately you said, my philosophy is no assholes, no bozos. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so that it seems to me like those are both the opposite of fully formed adults. So, so how do you tell when you've got one of one of those one of those on your hands that you don't want? Well, let me let me take you to how I got there. Oh, that's um, what I want to hear. You know, I'm a 30 year Silicon Valley vet, and I came fr- through HR. Right, I started out in recruiting. Uh, so my job was to you know to find the most amazing talent to do the most amazing things, <laughs> particularly in the technical side, uh-huh. and. And then as I sort of matured in HR, then my job was to make sure that they were incredibly happy so they could do amazing work and, you know, make powerful contributions. And it was this sort of godlike worship of engineers that Uh was kind of nauseating. And so we kind of turned them into bozos and assholes and tolerated them. So it was more about like non-toleration of the talented jerk Uh Right. So when when Reed and, Reed and I did a company, Reed Hastings, front CEO of Netflix, and I had done another company before Netflix, mm-hmm. and and I had come from that culture of you know make the engineers happy, make the engineers happy. And when he asked me to come to Netflix, I didn't want to do it because I thought it was a dumb idea. Um, but the company was a dumb idea. Yeah, come on. DVDs in the mail at that time. I mean, you know, and DVD players cost $1,500. I'm like, well, who are you going to sell these to? You and the five other people that have one of these? I mean, it's just – and Blockbuster was a thousand times – I mean, there's no disputing that they were – I mean, take them down. Um, But how he lured me was he said we could create the kind of company we always wanted. Uh And I said, okay, like no bozos, no assholes. I'm not (laughs) – I mean it. And and there wasn't – it wasn't just the engineering Uh side. It wasn't just the technical side. I was also tired of tolerating the people that were nice and worked hard Uh and didn't get much done. Right. So the people that just weren't the smartest people you could put in every job, but they had been there for a long time and they remembered everybody's birthday and, you know, they were fun to be around. And that as the company scaled, you kept making smaller and smaller jobs to Uh keep the nice people because you felt bad about not having them. And so that was sort of both sides of that. And and Bozos is not a nice way to say it. No, it's not a nice way, but it's But my point is. It's memorable. Yeah, I just didn't. You know, I wanted people who were grown-ups who wanted to work hard and create something. Let me tell you about a story about somebody we both know. This is Neil Blumenthal at Warby Parker. Uh-huh. When I first started working with Warby Parker, the, I mean, this is way – it seems it was only like three or four years ago. It was way, way back in the uh-huh. time machine. Uh they had separated out their customer service team from their other team in Manhattan. 
and the customer service people were, um, they were worried about them not feeling like family anymore. Mm -hmm. And I said to Neil, uh, I'd met with customer service people and their recruiters and everybody involved with them and all the, you know, all the consternation about moving them back to the office in Manhattan. So I said to Neil, you know, you told me that the number one thing that mattered to you as a leader was honesty and candor and openness. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know that, Patty. And you know, he's so sincere, right? That's absolutely true. And I said, well, then why are you lying to the people in customer service? And he said, I haven't talked to anybody in customer service in months. You're right. I probably should go over there. And I said, did you not say one time that um, if you join Warby Parker in customer service, we'll take care of your career? Ooh. That you have the opportunity to go anywhere you <clears throat> want to go? And he said, yeah, but I said that like years ago. And I said, the recruiters tell potential candidates every day, like Neil Blumenthal mm-hmm. says. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and it's an example of like, you know, and he's like, oh, <laughs> you know, like he, he meant it to be nice and right, he right. meant it to be true. Uh-huh. And he completely believed it, but he had never thought about that he hadn't unsaid it. Okay. And that the reality was not that anymore. So, well, so implied that, that there's some scaling part there that it's what got you here won't get you there, that there's certain things that work great. Yeah. And then they become like barnacles on the hull of a, of a ship. I would argue that as companies get bigger, uh, you got to have more process. You got to have more hi- hierarchy. You got to have more specialization. And they're just going to get more bureaucratic and it's just going to feel, uh, even in the best cases, like you're walking in muck as it gets bigger and bigger. And we're no! sort of- Oh, so that's what I want to hear. So, so, how, so how do you stop that crap from happening? How do you um, stop it? Scale and complexity go hand in hand. Uh, yes. Uh, so you're not necessary. And we tend to, when we're talking about people, talk about them in, as separate entities. So uh-huh. you, you, you say, we're so big, we just have to, you know, make sure that we have more process because then we'll go faster. And process always slows you down. Always. 100% of the time, right? So, but discipline can often speed you up. And so the difference between process and discipline is discipline is this is how we do things. This uh-huh. is how we behave with each other. And the more you can make some parts of your discipline self-replicating, you can replicate that across 100,000 employees if you have 10,000 people who know how to do it. If you start with the customer first, okay. so okay. Um, or you start with the outcome first and uh-huh. work your way from the outcome backwards, okay. then you'll realize that silos are just going to slow you down. Okay. And I think really, truly, in the companies that I've seen that are, that are incredibly um, successful, uh-huh. they're collaborative. And all of our tools, all of our technical tools allow us to collaborate now. And so it's it's most of the companies uh-huh. I work with are tech uh-huh. companies or internet companies where you're solving for the cu- customer and you can't solve for the customer siloed. You can't do it, okay. right? So if I say, wow, I've got this great product and um, – I need, it needs to work. Technically, uh-huh. it needs to work. It needs to be something you care about, right? Uh, to solve a problem. Uh-huh. Uh, it needs to be uh, uh, profitable, 
right? I, so what it reminds me of is in the in the early days of Southwest when they were under Herb Kelleher, they figured out that in, in, a lot of the employees were shareholders then yeah. too. Yeah. That once the seventy third person got on the plane, they were making money. Uh, everybody in the company would work so hard to get to 75 or 76 so so that they can make some money. I mean, I'd take every conflict management class till hell freezes over and throw it away and replace it with how to understand the okay. basic levers of your business, who your customers are, who your competitors are, what you're, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. When people can back to the mm-hmm. conflict, when people can internalize that, you mm-hmm. can give them a ton of freedom. Because mm-hmm. they're going to make judgment right. calls based on what's the right thing So that's for the back business. to fully formed adults again. And so at Netflix, I was lucky enough. Net, Reed and I didn't write the Netflix Culture Deck. It was a collaboration amongst the leadership teams at Netflix over all those. It's almost 20 years now. And they still work on it, right? Because I talk to Reed all the time. So it's not like we didn't suddenly do it. My job at Netflix was the COO of the culture. I was the one that said, if we write something down, what do we actually do to do it? And now when I consult with people, every time I meet with a startup CEO, they throw their slide deck in front of me and say, we want to, We took the ones things we like from Netflix and we want to do this. And then I usually you know, throw it over the, my back and say, it's not anything you write down on a slide. It's what you do. When friction's addictingly wonderful is when you have a really hard problem mm-hmm. to solve, a business problem, either f- uh, on behalf of the business or on behalf of the customer, and you're surrounded by brilliant people, and you go into the discussion sort of you know, excited and ready to stand your ground or mm-hmm. argue your point or be convinced otherwise, right? And, and you feel really prepared then that kind of healthy debate is a great sport, you know. And especially, you know, when I think about my my vision was uh-huh. like at times when I have walked in absolutely sure of my position and been convinced otherwise. So that's the sort of creative abrasion um, sort of view, uh, view of friction. Yeah, and that healthy and respectful challenging of your thought process, uh-huh. not your not just your conclusions. And that uh-huh. – and that, you know, I learned to facilitate over time by, you know, taking that when I'm looking at you and huh. I think, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You're completely clueless. Uh-huh. And closing my eyes and counting to 10 and saying, Bob is totally clueless. He, he doesn't, uh-huh. he either doesn't know what I'm talking about, right? Uh-huh. Or I don't know what he's talking about. So if I can stay calm. Uh-huh. In the middle of this heated debate, and say, "Help me understand where you're coming from. What leads you to believe that's true?" Uh-huh. Then now we get to challenge each other's assumptions, and that's when the sport starts to happen. So that's when it's sort of a classic constructive um, conflict where I'm listening to you. I'm thinking you're probably wrong, but I'm listening enough that yep. I can yep. I can actually change yep. my mind. Yeah, um, and it only occurs when I trust you. Okay. Right. And it only occurs with that weird thing that when it's good friction, I feel that you're arguing passionately on uh-huh. behalf of the right thing for the company or the customer. Not just for me because I'm smarter you, than you are. If I think it's for you, then I'm going to prove that you're not. 
right? Because I because you walked in being smarter, and now I, my job is to prove you're not. How would you make sure to keep it functional and keep the dysfunction from creeping um, in? You have to be able to call out in a meeting, for example, uh-huh. uh, where we're discussing a decision that you and I have been discussing discussing outside of the meeting. Mm-hmm. And I know you don't agree with what you think the leader's going to conclude. In fact, you've been nagging me about that for months, right? Uh-huh. And we're in the meeting, and it's an hour and a half into the meeting, and we're about to conclude, and the leader of the meeting says, okay, so we've all decided to do X, and I know Bob doesn't think that's a good idea, mm-hmm. and, and it's the, about me saying, so before we do this, hey, Bob, you know, you've been bending my ear that this is the stupidest idea you've ever heard for three months, uh-huh. so did we change your mind in this meeting? Hmm. Because, like, when we get out of here... Don't be talking about this to me anymore because it's done is done. This is here to decide. And then you can uh-huh. say, actually, you did <laughs> to change my mind. Or, no, I just, you know, nobody was going to ask me anyway. And then I would say in front of everybody, mm-hmm. well, I told you that's the kiss of death. Okay. And then you argue your side and now you're heard and everybody else in the meeting, again, this is the practice. Uh-huh. It's not just the practice of doing it. It's the practice of observing. Mm-hmm. So everybody else in the room says, wow, Patty and Bob just got in an argument, mm-hmm. and nobody died. Okay. It wasn't career limiting. And, and I and implied in that is there's not the backstabbing and second guessing that occurs once you make the decision and leave the room. Here's the deal about backstabbing. I love backstabbing as a metaphor uh, <laughs> because backstabbing is a great metaphor for office politics. Yes, or it is. Academic, po- whatever kind of politics. So here's the deal about politics. It's really inefficient. <laughs> I got to get a knife. I got to hide it. I got to wait till you turn around. I got to stab you in the back. I got to make sure that it goes in deep enough to kill you because I actually don't want you to come back right, right. and weird, right? <laughs> then there's the blood. Then there's the body. I mean, really, seriously, it's a lot easier for me to go, see this knife? Stop uh-huh. doing this. <laughs> so uh, you've already described what dysfunctional um, friction looks like. Yeah. So uh, when you start hanging out with them and talking to them, uh, what's the symptoms? What when you see friction, like uh, like 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 you mentioned politics? It's very different. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's almost the opposite. It's the um, unseen friction coated in niceness. Ooh, yes, yeah, yeah. We you talk- know that Ooh. that one where I say instead of saying Bob, stop doing that. You're making me fucking crazy, uh-huh. right? I say, you know, Bob. I'm kind of uncomfortable with where this is going, (laughs) but I know your heart's in the right place. And so I just, you know, I agree with you completely. It's just the implementation that I think might be difficult. And our teams might have some, some friction. So you have just described to me the Stanford culture. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me some ways about why best practices is if you want to get rid of friction, why it, it actually does the opposite. Cause, cause to me, that's what you've been implying in a lot of the stuff. So, I mean, you, all my stuff that you've read this a million times, if you said, I believe that giving people feedback might result in better performance. Mm-hmm. I instinctively think that's, no, that's true. That's like right. if, I, yeah. if I gave you yeah. something, it happens, you know, with your pets, it happens with your kids. Yeah. It happens with a sport, you know, you give people feedback and they get better. Right. right? I'm going to create a system to give people feedback so they'll be better performers. Mm-hmm. 
and you'd invent the annual performance review? No, it's just the dumbest product idea you ever heard. You'd be like, well, right. throw that out. That's not going to work for one thing. Nobody's going to get good at it because they only do it once. Yeah, a year. you have a and weird second conversation. Of all, you're gonna see, you're, and you're going to reward them for what they did, not what they're going to do. Yeah, that, well, that's, that would be a perfect you, you, example. And, and you're going to pay them for performance? You don't. You actually pay them for effort. You, pay, you end up work, paying people to right. work hard. And oh, by the way, those pay for, for performance models with rigid internal systems mm-hmm. actually economically keep you down, right? So, so you, if you, you – employees cannot be successful staying in a corporation with a 6.5% merit increase budget if they can change jobs and make 12%. It's just like bad economics. If you could get organizations to stop doing one thing – and think of friction especially for me. What, what, what would you tell me to get rid of? I would tell them to tell the truth. Ooh, and, lies. And, no, it's <laughs> not lies. It's the nuance of the nice communication, ooh, right? It's ooh. like humans can hear anything if it's true. I, it, you don't like it, but you can't dispute it. Okay. I mean, these are the things I learned from engineers right the world is black or white it's good or bad it's right or wrong it's zero or one right and so if i say you know about that interdepartmental communication Uh issue bob Uh that you continue to have because i sense the friction from my colleagues in the other (laughs) department where the people in their organizations are less than enthusiastic about potential engagement with you and the translation is (laughs) Bob, you're an asshole in those meetings and nobody wants to come anymore. And it, because you keep acting like you're the authority and everybody wonders why they have to come in and listen to you pontificate, just send an email, okay? <laughs> that's pretty good. So uh, I think that's a good way to – that's a gr- it's actually a great way to end. So, uh, Patty, thank you so much for joining us. That was really fun. <laughs> What I hope that you'll take away from today's podcast in particular is the power of having an organizational culture with a strong point of view where strong ideas are expressed and they're actually implemented. And while those strong ideas might not be right for everyone, the reason that they work at a place like Netflix is everybody knows what's good behavior what's bad behavior, and it actually gets rid of a lot of friction because people aren't confused about what to do and they don't argue about how to do things. Please join us on our mission to improve organizations and work by sharing your stories, tips and tricks, all those lessons you gleaned from the front lines of the workplace. To reach out, please email us at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu or find us on Twitter at eCorner. Also, please rate and review us on iTunes to help spread the word about this podcast. Next week on the podcast, we'll have my friend Michael Deering, uh, one of the most skilled early stage um, venture capitalists out here in Silicon Valley. He also will talk about um, the virtues of speed. He loves the speed that comes with uh, being a startup. And also, he's going to sing the praises of capitalism. It should be fascinating. <laughs>
The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Designing Organizational Change Project. Friction is produced by Eli Shell and Rachel Jilkowski. Michael Pena and Monica Yort are the outreach team. Danielle Stusi is our designer. Sarah Khan and Devorce Sankovich provide web support. Thanks once again to our wonderful guest, Patty McCord. I'm Bob Sutton. Thanks again for listening to our podcast. Here is today's final tangent. Here's the jargon I use. (laughs) I'm from Texas. (laughs) And my mama would say, misery loves company, honey. (laughs) And, you know, and when you got a miserable employee, then it's just going to look for all kinds of people to feel bad about it with you. You know, I divide employees into three categories. There are a third of the people think they're, uh, as my mama would say, they're a pig and shit. You know, Uh they're just having a great time. Uh They love what they're doing. The company's terrific. Their management is wonderful. Uh-huh. Um, let's go, right? And then a third of them are like, I'm not sure if this is really what I want to do. I don't really like how we reorged. I'm kind of done uh-huh. with this. I'm bored. I'm burnt out. And then the middle follows whoever gets the most noise. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.